You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hey everybody, this is Dirk Novell. Welcome to my podcast. On with me today is Mike Mora. Mike, welcome. Uh, happy to be here. So a quick intro on Mike. Um, you know, I've had this kind of similar intro with a couple of guests that I've had. So when I was younger, I was a uh, part of the ski crew and, you know, you're at that age where you look up to these guys and Mike was one of those guys who was part of this group of some of the best skiers around, but just super, super cool, super nice. Uh, you know, there's an age difference between him and I, but he was just, just one nice gentle guy. And I've always, you know, looked up to him and, it was years later, you know, life goes on. And I was sitting, I think, in a library at University of Washington, where I went to school. And I think you came in the coffee shop. Um, and I don't know if you were, you know, studying for your architecture degree or not, but then I saw you, but just one of those guys I haven't seen in a while. Uh, and so this is exciting for me, especially based on him being an architect, because that's a career that personally, I've always thought about for myself, because I really like the, um, I like designing and I've done a lot for my personal use. So I'm curious to get into it with you, Mike. Um, so what I'll do is let you kind of articulate, you know, if you are sitting down having coffee and somebody sits next to you and asks you what you do, how would you answer that? Well, I'm kind of your classic architect. We design buildings. Um, I've been doing it now for almost 30 years. Uh, I, I actually didn't study it as an undergraduate student. I, I got my master's degree in architecture. I grew up intending to be an architect um, from the time I was a little kid, uh, heavily influenced by uh, an uncle who's actually still practicing down in Los Angeles well into his 80s. Uh, but um, I, I, I got a master's degree in architecture at the University of Washington. And um, and, and I've been practicing ever since. And uh, I am uh, one of two partners, owners of a, a firm here in Seattle called Heliotrope Architects. And we are currently about 12 people in all. Uh, and we focus on high-end custom residential work and commercial work. Most of our commercial work is sort of in the hospitality realm, uh, restaurants, retail, uh, uh, hotels, um, uh, that sort of stuff with with some other types of ground up commercial projects mixed in um, smaller scale urban infill kind of buildings that you might find in yeah. Wallingford, those kinds of neighborhoods. Yeah, I've and, seen uh, I've seen your stuff. I mean, it's really cool. So so I didn't mean to interrupt you. So you're both on the residential and the commercial side. Yeah, we're about 50 50, which is which has been um, very beneficial for us through some of the economic and uh, sort of global pandemic turmoil that's happened really through the course of our practice when the recession hit back in 2008, uh, when COVID hit, uh, the fact that we had a, a certain level of diversity to the types of projects that we did between residential and commercial helped us uh, survive basically through those. The mortgage crisis uh, was a an event that dried up the residential work and we survived on our commercial projects and covid uh was a an event that dried up the commercial projects obviously restaurants and whatnot we were doing a massive project out at the new uh rei 
complex in the um, Spring District yep. in the Bellevue neighborhood out near where we went to school. Yeah. That uh, we were in the middle of design. It was, you know, um, it, we, we had four of our people staffed on it. And that just shut down, you know, you know two weeks into COVID. Uh, and so we were like everyone uh, concerned for a bit. But the residential work just took off. Uh, people looking for sanctuary and refuge. We do a lot of work up in the San Juan Islands, and we got um, a bunch of projects up there, uh, a big residential complex uh, uh, just up above Cleelum, um, project in New Zealand. Um, and so and so we the diversity of our commissions of, of our the project types that we take on, have helped us through some of the economic turmoil. Yeah, you know, I, there's so many questions that are popping in my head just listening to you. Uh, before I get into the job and kind of the the reason people are tuning in, um, I'm curious, like you as a kid growing up, was it Cherry Crest, Hayek, Interlake? Yep. You know, and you you got a dad, you had a uh, older brother that you know, professional football coach, uh, college coach, a younger brother, like. Why architecture? I'm just curious, like, what was it about architecture? Was it just merely your relationship with your uncle at a young age and you just gravitated towards that? Yeah, certainly that. Um, my uncle, Ed, Ed Niles, he's, a, he's actually a, a, a very well-regarded Los Angeles architect. Um, and he uh, he's worth looking up if you're interested in West Coast architecture. Yeah. Um, he He designed the house that Johnny Carson and his wife lived in, where Johnny died and uh, did some projects for him um, late in Johnny's life. He designed the house next door that Sean Penn and Madonna got married at in Malibu. He, um, he worked for and with some of the great uh, mid-century West Coast architects, um, very famous ones, um, Craig Elwood, et cetera. Um, uh, uh, Carl Maston, who's uh, not a recognizable name, but was an important figure back then in the California, uh, kind of the modern era of, you know, 50s California style. Uh, so he was a big influence. He's a great guy. Uh, we'd go out to these job sites, houses under construction around Southern California, and there were always these crazy houses. He's, his stuff is very um, sort of um, uh, technical and science fiction inspired uh, and so I love that. And that was definitely a, uh, an inspiration for me, no doubt. But, but I also, I also, I liked to draw. Um, I liked um, space and environment. I was interested in the built world. Uh, I was the kind of guy that would rearrange my collection of Miami Dolphins posters, you know, <laughs> every couple of months. Um, and so I just, I was, I was always interested, interested in sort of space and an environment and kind of the the psychological, emotional effect it had on a person, you know, this sort of being in certain types of spaces where they were, they were, um, you know, they were sad spaces, you know, and they would affect me in other types of spaces that were, were positive and inspiring and, and energizing and all that. And I, I've kind of always been a little bit attuned to that my whole life, I think. I mean, not really conscious of that when I was a kid, but I think that's been a pretty common thread in my kind of my, my psyche, uh, my consciousness through most of my life. You know, the, 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 I'm, I'm very much a believer that, you know, we are very much influenced and a product of our environment. I hear you. Um, 
I, you know, it's interesting. I, I'm curious what Miami Dolphin players you had on your wall, by the way. Were, I can were, name them. Marino, Zonka? No, 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 no. Yeah, so this was the undefeated season. Okay. It's Bob Greasy, Nick Bonacotti, Paul Warfield, Jake Scott, Gero Yepremian, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, uh, Paul Warfield. I might have already said him. Yeah, I think I had all of them. I was a big Dolphins fan. So you, you still had the football gene inside you. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, yeah. I I would have had I been bigger and faster. Yeah, I I would have loved to have kept playing. You know, post high school, very much so. Yeah, yeah. me too. I thought I was gonna go. Uh, my brother is like six five. My dad played at Florida State. I have a family, and I I was probably the best out of them all. But I just didn't grow, and I had a couple of head injuries. And I'm pretty glad I ended my career because I went to UW and remember watching those guys. And I think it wouldn't have ended well for me. Um, yeah. I didn't, yeah. it's just a different level. Um, so, okay. So you're growing up. So you always had this creative side. Uh, was there just kind of the voices in your head? Was there pressure from family or was it very supportive? Like you kind of knew what you wanted to do from yeah. an early age. So there was no pressure. No, very, very supportive family. My, my mom and dad both. Cool. Uh, and, and they, you know, my dad became a head coach and started making better money in um, 1983, I think, 84. And so my grandfather actually helped fund my initial year or two of college. Uh, and so my parents um, paid my way through college, which was fantastic. Um, I worked, but I wasn't having to rely on that work to stay in school, to fund school. They uh, they encouraged me to, um, I, I started school. I actually started school at the University of Colorado and I lasted one semester. Uh, and I was in the architecture uh, prerequisite program. Uh, and I got homesick and I came back to Seattle and I skied that winter and I transferred to the University of Washington that fall, that next fall, what would have been my sophomore year while well, I was still a freshman credit wise. Uh, and I actually met my wife that fall. So good decision there. Uh, and I, I sort of tentatively started pursuing architecture in terms of taking the prerequisite courses, but for some reason I got sidetracked. Well, I got, I got, I got very interested in this, um, uh, this the, a program, a, a recently renamed program back then, the Henry Jackson School of International Studies. I was in that. So that was what I got my degree. That was my major too. Yeah. So so it and it was it was very much the hot thing right then. Scoop Jackson had had passed away, and and the school had inherited a bunch of money from his campaign fund or something like that. And, um, and he became the namesake of the program. And, and I was, I, I was very intrigued and interested. And, and, and while I always knew I wanted to be an architect in my next life, when I come back, I want to be a foreign service officer or, or a, a diplomat. So, or maybe just a spy. I love it. I, uh, I, I struggled in that. I, I wasn't the smartest guy in the world. And I just remember times I was even crying, like, like I was barely, I mean, a lot of smart dudes. Uh, and I was like, what the hell am I in this for? Like, I, I thought I wanted to be an ambassador or a diplomat like you. And it's interesting that you and I were both in that, but I, I was impressed 
with how many of the foreigners knew more about my country than I did, like the Canadians yeah. and, but yeah. a lot of smart people in that group for sure. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's what I got my bachelor's degree in. And, and, and I'm very happy that I did. I'm, I'm proud of that, uh, that, that, that I studied that. And, and, and it, was a, it was a lesson learned that I've imparted on younger architects or young people interested in studying architecture since. I, I graduated, uh, my wife, then girlfriend at the time, uh, and I worked for a year, saved up our money, bought a year rail pass, went to Europe and rode the trains around Western Europe for three months. And it was in Italy. I remember the moment on a train looking out the window when I looked at her and I said, I think I need to go back and study architecture. I think that's still my calling. And my dad had told me when I graduated from um, the, the, this School of International Studies program, we, we were talking about law school. And he was like, hey, if you want to go to law school, I will absolutely support you in that. And, and so that was kind of what I was thinking. But got to Italy, started hanging out in that fantastic place. Uh, certainly from an architectural standpoint, and um, and decided to go back to my original calling. So I uh, got into the graduate program at the University of Washington, which is a three-year program if you don't have an undergraduate degree in architecture. If you're studying it uh, with, a, with, a, with a BA in architecture, it's a two-year program. So it's sort of this interesting thing. You, you start, and then next year, the two-year people join you. You get this influx of new people. It's it it was it was it was a, a good program um, and uh, and 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 then I basically just launched out into my career. I had this great sort of experience happen uh, that that was sort of my kind of my professional origin story that coincided with the whole grunge music uh, movement, which which brought me my first commission uh, while I was doing my my thesis, and so. Um, that's how I, I entered the, the professional field of architecture. Um, it's interesting because like if you're listening right now, you mentioned um, you, you, you play on both sides of the fence, commercial, residential. Is there a third side or a fourth side or are, are those the two? Yeah. No, there's public, public work. Okay. Yeah, so public libraries, um, courthouses, um, and then there's, there's a, you know, there's a, um, there's, this is, I guess, probably in the commercial realm, but there's a whole medical category of design work, which is highly specialized. Okay. Um, but um, public and residential and commercial okay. probably be the three majors. And we really don't pursue any public work, not because we're not interested in it, but Seattle has uh, a group of architects that are very, very good at it. And you really just can't, get your foot in the door uh, and, and maybe for good reason. The fact that they're doing it and doing it so successfully uh, is, is great for the community. So we, we did a little library edition a long time ago. We probably did one or two other things, uh, something for the parks department, but we just realized that it just, it was um, too much of an uphill battle. Yeah, I get it. Is yeah. it. What about landscape architecture? Is that part of the, or is that a different animal altogether? It, it's, it's a different animal. Um, so we, we will collaborate with landscape architects on projects quite often. Okay. Uh, we will, we design the areas 
around buildings quite a bit. So paved areas, site walls, water elements, swimming pools, um, that kind of stuff. We're not plant guys. So, um, but, but, but landscape architects will do plant layout, plant selection, all that, but they also will do swimming pools and patios and pathways and all that stuff. It, it really just depends. Depends on the project, depends on the landscape architect. I just finished a book called, I think it's the devil in the white city and they go deep into the Chicago world trade fair back in the day with the landscape guys and the architectural building guy. And it's really interesting. You might, if you haven't read it, you might enjoy that. Um, I, I know the book. I haven't. Yeah, it's really good. So someone's coming out, I guess, and they're thinking like, I like architecture. I like design. I'm creative. I like, like, is there a process for somebody that's wanting to get in, start their career? Like, do they just jump in, uh, in one and, and, or are there, uh, companies that might have all of them and then you kind of just rotate every six months into a different like how does someone determine which 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 one of these is maybe more in alignment with who they are well i mean first off to be an architect is a you know you're a state licensed um it's a state licensed profession right like being a doctor or a lawyer so you 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 don't get to call yourself an architect per se until you're actually licensed as such. And that requires um, certain things that you have to, you know, a, a series of hoops that you need to jump through. Uh, you Typically, you need to have a, a an architecture degree. Now, you can circumvent that if you just work in the profession long enough. But but the, the normal path for the vast majority of architects is that you go to school and you study architecture and you get a, a Bachelor of Arts or a Master's in architecture. And so then you go out and you get a job uh, and you, you to, to be an architect, you then have to spend, I think it's still about two years under the employment of a licensed architect. So you're just an intern, you've got your degree, but you're not technically an architect. You can't put architect on your business card. You can't say I'm an architect. You can't market that you're an architect. But you go to work for an architect and you start to collect hours uh, um, performing different categories of architecture, um, uh, construction administration, which is you know what you're doing while the building is under construction, and design and technical staff, you name it. And then you take your exams, uh, which is, um, I want to say there's probably eight different categories. I just don't remember. It's been a long time. And when you pass those exams, then you become a licensed architect. You get a stamp and you can stamp drawings and you're, you know, so, so that's sort of the process typically is that you're interested in the profession and you, you go to school and you study it in college. It's not the only way to do it, but that's the most common path. Got it. So. Okay. And so getting into the career itself, like, what is it you talked about like what excites you. I, I guess my question is, what is it about being an architect that you love so much? Like, what is it? What's the why for you? Is there multiple whys or is there a couple? Is there one? Yeah, no, I think there's multiple whys. Um, I really like the puzzle. Um, just sitting down and solving the puzzle of this complicated object, even small architectural buildings are complicated. 
right? I mean, a bathroom remodel or Safeco field. It involves uh, figuring out how to put together hundreds, thousands, millions of pieces uh, so that they uh, perform correctly, that they last, that they don't leak, that they look beautiful, that they do what they're supposed to do. My, my most common analogy, and it's not a perfect one, is, um, is car design in the sense that buildings, well, being obviously completely different from each other, they're, they're both things, objects, that can look beautiful and need to perform to a high level of safety and function. So, and you should be able to have your cake and eat it too with both, right? So, um, you know, if you're going to spend $150,000 on a Porsche 911, it's a great looking object. Um, but you know that you can get in it, that your door is going to open and close and open and close a thousand times, that your radio is going to work. And more importantly, that you're going to press the gas pedal down and you're going to take it up to 120 miles per hour down the freeway and a cow is going to start crossing the road and you're going to slam on your brakes and it's going to do everything that it's supposed to do to be safe for you and everybody around you, right? And, and then there's performance, uh, gas miles, uh, um, conditioning that you, you know, you're driving through the Phoenix uh, um, uh, environment in the middle of the day and you can crank on the air conditioner and be comfortable. You can be driving through the mountains in the winter and turn on the heat and be comfortable, all that kind of stuff. You get the point. Like, like yeah. looks, looks and performance both equally matter. Yeah. Um, the difference is, is, is that Porsche gets to spend a decade developing a new model, creating prototype after prototype, testing it, testing it, figuring out what doesn't work, what does work. And finally, when they get to the point that they feel like they've got this thing perfected or close to perfected, then they build a massive factory, an assembly line, and then they just start cranking out thousands of these already figured out perfected objects. On the other hand, when we design custom buildings, each building is also the prototype. So we only get one shot to get it right or as right as possible. And so that's one of the real challenges to what we do is just you get one shot. You know, you learn lessons through each successive projects. There's mistakes that you make that you only make once, but there's a lot of challenges that you're confronted with where they're hard to the each new project re-challenges you and there's no guarantee that because you made the mistake last time that you might not make the mistake again this time so um, so that you know it comes with there's a lot of there's a lot of risk and anxiety you're responsible for um a lot of money that your clients are uh, investing into these projects. Um, it's, it's, um, for them, it's a, you know, whether it's a commercial project or, or it, whether it's their home, the kind of the psychological and emotional financial, uh, costs and benefits are of course different, but, um, and, 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 you know, we as architects, you know, you, you learn that you try to learn to carry that the burden of their anxiety and risk uh, 
uh, as 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 lightly as you can, you know, responsibly. Like you you have to you have to bear that burden and make sure that you're. I mean, it's not it's nothing compared to being somebody's brain surgeon about to operate on their tumor, but there is some there is some stress and anxiety that comes with the responsibility, no doubt. What happens like when, you know, you're creative, you, you're experienced, you're credible, but when there's a difference of opinion, like the people that are hiring you for a project and you're getting into it and like, is it often where you reach a crossroads and you have to bend the knee or yeah. so you kind of, there are, there is the politics in your industry that you kind of, you might oh, have yeah. a different, okay. So you have yeah. still, okay. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, again, one of the one of the lessons learned for me over the last few years, particularly for some reason, it just started to really hit home. Is that when you get commissioned to design a building, your assignment, your the creative assignment is figuring out what this building is going to be, but also designing the relationship between you and this particular client, who is always uniquely different from the other clients you have had, right? Everybody has different values and expectations. They see the world differently. Uh, they have different communication styles. They hear things differently, right? Their filters are unique uh, and, uh, and, and they have different tastes, right? I'll have a meeting in the morning where a client will say, who in their right mind would ever use Marvel? I hate Marvel. It's the dumbest thing in the world. And anybody who would ever consider using it is just an idiot. And then two hours later, you have a meeting with somebody who says, oh my God, I love Marvel. It's beautiful. I mean, it's the history, Greece. You know, I love the wear and tear of it. I love the fact that my wine soaks into it and leaves that, that, that history, you know, of my life. And so you have to be creative and nimble and flexible and not overly dogmatic about how you construct these relationships with these clients who are, you know, who are your lifeblood, right? I mean, they're, yeah. they're your, um, I mean, we're service providers. They're the ones that are paying us and they're the ones that are recommending us uh, to their, to their friends or colleagues. And so um, it's, it's, it's vitally important. Um, it doesn't always go successfully uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, sometimes you feel like you've done everything right and it's still wrong. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's just, it's just a difference of opinion. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you just overstretch and you make mistakes. Um, who are these people though? I Mike, I I'm curious, like if someone's listening, like who is it is the decision maker? Like, I guess if you're doing residential, is this a homeowner? And if it's a commercial, is it like a marketing agency that you're answering to like, or is it the actual person who's the developer or the owner? Like, who are you actually having to convince? Yeah. So with residential, it's the owner, the homeowner, the 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 two, the married couple, you know, the the bachelor, the the young woman, the the widow. Uh, but they're they're the client. Sometimes this is more the case with um, uh, high net worth people. There will be an owner's rep that is sort of your liaison through to the client that you're dealing with. But virtually most of the time, you're, you're engaging directly with the homeowner, the people that have contacted you and, um, and hired you, who, and who are going to be living in these spaces. And you, and you really kind of have to have that, um, that connection with them. Because you, you know, you're, having, 
you're having pretty intimate conversations about how how they will live in this this thing you are making together. And it's and it's very collaborative, frankly. I mean, some clients are a little bit more hands-off and some are more hands-on, but but in virtually every case, it's it is a it is a collaboration. It is a back and forth and a negotiation and, and a compromise. And uh um and so uh you, you know you're and you're and you're trying to learn how to at the same time that you're trying to design this building, you're also designing this framework by which you get them the the best thing that you think that they're asking you for, or 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 better still, you know that, and 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 clients will very much sometimes make decisions where you feel like they are, to repeat something I said earlier, they are cutting off their nose to spite their own face, that they're working against their own best interests. Usually that involves money, right? Um, and and so it's a real, uh, you know, you're really trying to thread a needle yeah. between um, uh, being responsible and accountable to uh, budget and schedule and, um, and, and, and then giving them uh, something great, you know, that they really love. And clients often don't always have a good perspective on that alignment problem where they will be very adamant about what their budget is. And then they will be very adamant about what their design expectations are. And there can be a real you know, lack of alignment between those. And, and that can be a delicate conversation to have sometimes, you know, it'd be like, you know, you saying that you want to spend a, you know, a, a Volkswagen Passat amount of money on a, you know, a Mercedes S-Class car. And, um, and when the object doesn't exist yet, uh, there is a communication challenge sometimes in sort of navigating through that, that um, kind of lack of understanding of what buys what. Yeah, so, I get it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned money, and I'm certainly not asking you anything personally about like compensation as an architect. You have your own firm. Like, if somebody's curious, like you know, they got to pay the bills and they got to make a living. Are are you paid a commission? Like, how does it work typically when when you do a project? And I'm guessing projects can last. You know, and that, another question I have is like, how long typically are projects? Maybe, you know, the average a year to four years to five years and you get paid up front. I mean, how does that work? Yeah. So um, we we get a fee uh, that's negotiated right at the beginning and then we're paid. We, we bill out monthly, um, almost always. Sometimes we might stall a few months depending on the, you know, how much work is getting done, the cadence or the pace of the project. Um, but um, there are different ways to structure your fee. Um, so, you know, the most straightforward one is just time and expense, right? You just you just bill out at an hourly rate. And um, but most clients, most clients don't just say, "Okay, great, bill us at an hourly rate." Go. They want to know what the likely ultimate tally is going to be, and so we have to have a conversation about what they can expect to spend for a project that they're describing wanting okay. if we're just going hourly. 
Got it. But yeah. we can't guarantee. But when we do that, we can't guarantee. You know, we can't say it's it's going to end up being a hundred thousand dollars in fee, period, uh, because you just don't know what lies ahead when you start these projects. Would um, you would you say? I know it depends on the market, but as far as like the mix, like commercial residential, would you say like you have 10 projects going on simultaneously or five or two or what's well, in the office. Yeah. In the office, we probably have about 20. So my, in, in the way we structure it in, in our office, my, my partner and I decided when we first formed 20 something years ago, that we were going to be almost like a kind of a medical practice where we each had our respective clients and we, um, we have a great working relationship, a great partnership, um, but we actually don't work on projects together. Either he's in charge of his jobs or I'm in charge of my jobs. And we found that that was a much more tenable way to run a practice where so much of what you're doing is highly subjective and easily, um, uh, um, easily, heading towards dispute and disagreement. You know, I say red, you say green, what's the right answer? There really isn't a right answer, right? It's just, it's kind of subjective and arbitrary. And we realized that our practice was going to survive more likely if we, um, we siloed ourselves and, um, and, and, and we, we interact all the time uh, for all kinds of reasons, obviously just for running the practice in general terms, but also um, talking through what each of us are going through with projects or clients or consultants. We have our staff that bounces back and forth between uh, the two of us. So he doesn't have his group and I don't have my group. We very much are about making sure that everybody's working with everybody else on all different types of projects all the time. But we also realize that for clients, like if we were doing a project with you, that it's really important that you know kind of where the buck stops, what person, that, that, that if I'm your principal for the project we're doing for you, you know that if there's a problem, that there's one final person that you know you can turn to and say, hey, we're having issues. It also means that if something needs to happen on the project, we don't get into scenarios where Joe wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, oh man, we forgot about that. Mike's probably got it. And I wake up and think the same thing, but I think Joe's probably got it. And then nobody's got it. I know that if it's my job, that, that I'm, I have, I'm, I'm, it's all on me. Right. Yeah, I get it. Um, you said something about sometimes it doesn't go well. And in, in my limited knowledge of architecture, I was trying to understand that a little bit. Cause like when you do a, a sketch, you kind of have a visual, you buy off, you kind of have an idea what it's going to look like. So I'm, I'm assuming the design isn't a surprise because you've designed it. You know what it's going to look like beforehand. Were you referring to like the functionality of how it works? Like what doesn't go well? Cause it, it seems like, you know what you're getting once you sketch it up and show the client, I guess I was a little confused on that. Well, it, it can be all kinds of things and it can be design stuff as well, because, you know, a drawing, even a 3D model of the computer is, is very much an abstraction, right? And um, size of rooms can be a thing. Um, uh, relationship of rooms sometimes. Um, and, you, you know, and, and you, you know, we are, we are 
very thorough about vetting all of our decisions with our clients. You know, we we are um, we are very service heavy. Like there's a lot of meetings and a lot of discussions. Okay. Okay. And, um, so the client is seeing everything, and they're usually, you know, if you're if you're designing a five million dollar house for a young family, they they're very engaged. It's rare to have a client who just says, "You figure it out." You know, it it can get relentless at times. What's your preference? Uh, Do you like that, or would you rather have someone that's more involved uh, versus someone that says, "I trust you. Do your thing." Hey, I don't know. I, I think an engaged client is really helpful, actually. Um, I, I do. You know, you just you just want to be you want to be um, in sync uh, and uh, simpatico with each other. And so we, we've learned over the years when people call us inquiring about working with us, we have learned to actually uh, ask them specifically, are you familiar with our work? Have you looked at our work? Uh, because it's not always the case that they have. Sometimes their, their colleague at work just says, hey, you should call these guys. And they don't really, you know, they don't, they just don't think about it. And they call us and they, they engage with us. And then we realize that what we do, what we're really good at doing is not what they particularly want. And so you want to be aligned, right? You want to, you want to make sure you hire the band to your wedding who play the music that you like and that they're good at playing. Uh, we don't, we, we're not, you know, most architects have a niche. It might be a wide niche. It might be a narrow niche. But if somebody came to us and said, hey, we, we really like um, Tudor style. We'd like you to design a Tudor house for us. We would point them to other people more, um, more of that style. I get it. So we're, you know, our work is more, more contemporary. Um, and so that, so, so there's that, and then there's performance, you know, there's like, you know, my, my example about the, the car design, right. Um, things break and they leak and they, um, um, they, all kinds of weird things happen. Right. I mean, the unknown unknown is just, is just mind boggling. Uh, and sometimes you don't, sometimes the thing breaks a decade later, like we 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 have that on one of one of my favorite projects that we've ever done. My, my partner was the lead design on was a house up on Orcas Island that's probably fifteen plus years old now. Really great project, but um, there was a leak uh, in the roof that is uh, a garden roof uh, that's been leaking forever, uh, and was just recently discovered. And so the whole thing is torn out now and getting redone. And, you know, so sometimes the, sometimes the, the problem is happening for years and you, you don't even know until it presents somewhere in a, you know, a puddle on the garage floor or something. No, I get so, it. Yeah. Yeah, so people, you, I mean, you might think they're gone forever, but they resurf. I mean, that's one thing. If you're thinking about architecture, it's not like a, a one-off see you later. Uh, you might see them again, 10 years down the road. Yeah, and, and, and the best way to see them 10 years down the road is when they call you to do another project, right? That's the best sign. And we and we have those. You know, the house we're doing in New Zealand right now is for a couple that we did a house for here in Seattle 10 years ago. 
and he's from New Zealand and that's where they want to retire to. They bought this beautiful piece of property down on the South Island and uh, uh, through the course of COVID at a very slow pace, we've been chipping away at this great residential project. And so if a client calls you back for that reason, for more work, that's great. But just as often, they might be calling you back even 10 years down the road because, because something went wrong. Got it. No, I, 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 I get that even in my world. So I'm curious, like your day, like, you know, you're a business owner, but you're also an architect. So sometimes good architects don't make good business owners, right? And vice versa. Yeah. So if someone's watching Mike and listening and thinking, oh, this is cool. I'd like to own my own gig and I love architect, but that doesn't necessarily translate for everybody. Um, what, I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to get into is like, there's different flavors or there's different skill sets that comprise your firm. Yeah. Um, would you say that, like, is it common that owners of architectural firms are our actual arch practicing architects or is that typical? No, I think usually, and I'm not an expert on this, Dirk, so, but I think from what I can tell, most owners of architectural firms are architects or at least in big firms, there are architect owners, and then there might be an owner who came through um, human resources or marketing or business development. So I worked at NBBJ Architects, which is one of the great global firms based out of here, out of Seattle. They design Safeco Field and the Gates Foundation, and they're, they're huge, and they do work all over the world. <clears throat> and some of their owner, most of their owners, partners are architects. But you know, one of them was uh, uh, an interior designer. Um, one of them was a lawyer, right? So, but for a small practice like ours, there, um, I think in terms of the realm of architecture that we operate in, the owner is going to be an architect. Okay, I was just and curious. Then, and then, uh, um, and then, and then, really, it's just you know, it's all over the map in terms of how how it goes down in each respective firm. I suspect. In our case, uh, Joe and I uh, are, um, we are, we are, we are design architects, like we put pencil to paper, we are, um, we, we did this because we, we don't necessarily want to manage other people or crunch numbers, we want to draw and think through the problems of design, work with clients and contractors and consultants, and fabricators, that's, that's our jam. Um, but the second you start hiring people, you you gotta you gotta be responsible for other other aspects of of, of the business. I, I I'm lucky because I partnered up with somebody whose strengths are my weaknesses, and I think probably vice versa. Uh, I, I think Joe's probably a better business person than I am. Um, he cares about numbers in a way that I don't. Um, um, he's um, he's uh, uh, he's he's a great architect, but. So we've, we've, we work well together from that standpoint, yeah. uh, but, uh, but we both are very much interested in being um, owners that are still very much doing architecture, right? Thinking through the problems, designing, uh, albeit with, with our team, right? Yeah. I, I'm curious as we kind of start to wind down, if someone's watching, like what's your day like? I mean, you're, if you were purely an architect, maybe you're all your day is design, but as a business owner, like, are you spending four hours in creative design, 
two hours and meetings with potential clients and partners? Like what is the day, the week? Uh, is this a nine to five thing? Is this, do you find yourself working at nights on weekends? Um, do you have the ability to, to leave your work behind and go hang out with your family? Like, I'm kind of curious, like what the lifestyle the day is like for somebody who's an owner and a practicing architect. Yeah. Well, good question. Um, and, and, you know, everybody has their own, there, there's no standard here, of course. Um, I work probably 60 hours a week plus, um, I work almost every Saturday. Uh, I think I probably work about 10 hours a day, but I really like working. Uh, my dad was a huge influence on me. My dad worked his ass off. Um, he had a really successful career. Uh, my dad was one of those bosses who never left before the people that were working for him left to get an assignment done, which I always had a massive amount of respect for. And I try to emulate that. Um, when I was at NBBJ, the boss is there. You'd be working on a deadline. You knew you're going to be there till one o'clock in the morning, and they'd pack up their briefcase at five and look at you and say, "Don't work too hard," and chuckle and go home. And you'd be stuck there eating cold pizza, you know, through the night. And I hated that. I didn't respect it. Uh, and so we, in our office, very much try to have a kind of a a real team mentality of one for all and all for one. Um, and I think as an owner, it's imperative that you sort of establish the standard in terms of um, hard work and focus and all of that stuff. But, but to answer your question about like how, how my day is spent, I try to have as much of my day spent on thinking through the problems of design as much as possible. But, but Joe and I are also the ones that have to go out and generate new work. So we're, um, we're, we're certainly marketing um, and, um, um, but, but, and then, and, and then there's just stuff that has to happen in the office, but we try to, we try to minimize that and focus on the work because the best marketing for us is, is doing good work and providing good service for, for our, our clients. Yeah. I love it. You know, it's interesting with a lot of the guests that are creative, even like a music film score producer I interviewed, you have to have that likability factor, the, the getting out there and, and you know, talking mm -hmm. to people and, and doing, you know, the phone calls, a financial advisor, you know, it's like, it's not all fun and games and sitting back and getting creative and drawing. And um, you actually have to get out there. And so I think it's important because like on one side, you could think, oh, I'm a total introvert. Architecture would be great. I can go in my office, close the door and just get focused. But as a business owner, you have yeah. to have those social personal skills as well to actually get people to trust you and like you and earn the business. So it's yeah. something to think about. Um, I do have to ask, is there anything about the career? And I'm not a negative guy, but like, you know, if you had a, a child that was really interested in getting involved and in following in your footsteps, but there was one thing you're like, you know, I want you to know about this, like maybe something like financial stability, uh, uh, control freedom. I mean, I don't know what those things are, but is there anything about the career that you don't like? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's little things. Um, I, I, I like what I do and I, I, I don't really want to retire. Um, I, um, <clears throat> 
I think you have to certainly be built a certain way to thrive in the profession. Okay. Um, this sort of, you know, you, you got, you got to, you got to care, but that goes for any profession, right? Yep. Um, uh, attention is paramount. Um, we talk about that a lot in the office that, that you can never let up on sort of a high level of attention to the work that you're doing. Um, and so uh, to be attentive usually requires that you have to care, right? It's hard to be attentive about something that you just don't care about. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I think there has to be a just a kind of an innate um, interest, passion, uh, natural tendency to want to solve these particular types of problems, right? Like if somebody said to me, Mike, you now have to go have a career as a um, as an accountant. I don't know what I would do, right? Because I just don't care. I don't care about that. I don't care about numbers. They go in one ear and out the other. Uh, and so uh, I think in terms of finding your profession, um, obviously a lot of people have just to work to be able to sustain themselves, right? To make some money and live. But if you have the good fortune to find something to be able to do professionally to get paid for that you that you really care about, right? That you that that a lot of times it might drive you crazy, it might stress the crap out of you, uh, it might make you cry, but in the end, there's not really anything else you'd rather be doing, except for maybe being a foreign service officer. Um, <laughs> That is really important. And we see people come through our office who you suspect maybe don't care, innocently so, right? They, they, they just, they just, it's just maybe not really what they should have set out to do. And, um, uh, and, and, and usually that's reflected in their work. So it's certainly important for us when we're thinking about who comes and joins our practice. Um, you know, what is their kind of their, and, and, and passion is probably the wrong word, but it's sort of the, the obvious one. But, you know, it's that, do they really care about this thing that they're doing? I love and where that can get you a long way. I love it because this, this kind of ties into the, it's like a race, you, you know, running a race that you're faking it. It's exhausting. Eventually, if you don't care, yeah. it's going to be, it could translate. I mean, you could be in your zone of excellence and be really good at it. But when you're in your zone of genius, I, I feel like caring is a good word to describe that. Do you have any advice for someone, a young lady, young man, maybe career change coming out of school and they're pretty dead set on architecture? Like anything that I haven't asked that you think is something that you'd want them to think about before they commit? Well, what, one thing that I tell a lot of young people that are thinking about studying architecture as undergrads, as I say, if you can, if you can afford it, um, both financially and in terms of just the time you have in your life, is you might consider something studying something different as an undergrad: philosophy, international relations, business, art, uh, literature, and and then maybe go work or travel, and then apply to architecture as a professional degree, a, a master's degree. Uh, for one reason, just because studying architecture as an undergrad, as a 18, 19, 20, 21 year old, when you're also just trying to have that college experience 
can be tough because it's an incredibly uh, uh, demanding uh, uh, educational discipline uh, and can really um, put a damper on your college social life. Uh, I, I didn't do that. I didn't have that experience because I studied something different, but I've seen it over and over again. And so, um, and some of the best architects that I know are ones that, that um, you know, maybe studied history or philosophy as undergrads, and then they ended up studying uh, architecture uh, as a professional degree. They were more committed, uh, they were more disciplined, um, and, and just spending vast amounts of time in the studio uh, uh, was an easier sacrifice to make when you were 25 or 26 and you kind of had really sort of landed on that this is something that you wanted to do as opposed to when you're, you're 21 and your, your frat brothers are all out at, um, you know, the Ram or whatever the local pub is. Duchess, uh, Roanoke. Roanoke, right. That's right. That was one of so, my best jobs ever. Yeah. Um, but, and, then, <laughs> and, then, and then the other one would just simply be if you have the opportunity to work in the construction industry, right. that's, a, that's a great benefit. Okay. What do you think, uh, again, as we wind this down, what do you think like your competition and peers, like, I'm curious when they talk about you, like, not that they're sitting around talking about you, but what do you think, like, what is your, why do, why, why do people come to you? Like you have a, a uniqueness, a niche, whatever you want to call it. What would you say like your special skill or your special talent is as it relates to architecture? Like why would somebody go hire Mike Mora for a project versus somebody else who's also pretty good? Good question. I'm not entirely sure I know the answer. Okay. I would hope, I would hope it's because they see me and they see our firm as um, a resource that, that cares, right? And will strive to and, and, and work very hard to give them the best possible product and service you know, really kind of for the best price in a way. Not that we're not that we're cheap, but just that you get the most bang for your buck and that okay. we're there for you. Uh and um and and I guess equally and relatedly that they find us uh trustworthy and stimulating and enjoyable to work with and they like the results of what we put in front of them. Um and that and that that they come out of it feeling like it was a, a fulfilling, rewarding experience above and beyond just getting this thing that they move into, uh, that there was, that there was an engagement, um, uh, that there was value in the relationship. Yeah, I get it. Um, you know, that's, it's something that I've struggled with in lending your little brothers in the same business is, you know, differentiating yourself. Like we're all good at what we do. You know, most of us care. I care a lot, but sometimes in the lending world, you know, it comes down to fee and rate and yeah. uh, it's hard to like, you know, if I think I have these unique skills. Maybe I'm vulnerable. I'm sensitive. I'm a smart, I, whatever it is that I am, yeah. I don't get to use those tools very often. They don't mean much in the world of being a lender. Um, and I guess, do you feel like your personality, I mean, it sounds like it does, but you get to be you and that's sticky. That means something, right? Uh, people, yeah. people not only are paying you for your skill set, but they're also paying you for your, and you know, the trust, the confidence, yeah. the likability. I mean, it seems like you kind of yeah. have to have both sides of it. 
Yeah, I think so. It, but it's a double-edged coin or double-sided coin. It it like like I I I think one of my weaknesses is probably that I'm not necessarily the hard ass that I sometimes might need to be, right? And I, and I'm aware of that. Um, you know, you you you're you know, we try to play the long game, right? Like one thing that's really important for us, um, certainly in this community, but probably any community in this profession is to not burn bridges, right? That relationships, that relationships are really the, um, you know, the, the coin of the realm to being successful. Um, and, and that can put you in some challenging positions sometimes between clients and consultants and contractors and there might be pressure from one side to make a a decision that feels rash against one of the other people involved in this triumvirate or whatever it is right and you feel like maybe you're being weak because you're you're trying to like just keep everything at bay and you're not you know blowing your gasket or you're not firing somebody or you're not, right? You you have to sometimes navigate through this minefield of, of people that are at their most uh, anxious moments. They've spent tons of money. Something's gone wrong. Somebody's not responding fast enough. And, and maybe the easy inclination is just to blow your lid and quit or fire somebody or, and, we really talk a lot about how important with particularly with what we do is just trying to keep an even tone, stay cool, stay calm, stay positive, uh, play the long game. Don't wreck relationships uh, needlessly uh, because, you know, it's a small, Seattle's a small town and, uh, and, 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 and everybody, no matter how good they are, no matter how professional they are, they have things happen. They have life crises, um, uh, personal things, business things, people quit, you know, um, things go wrong, um, pandemics happen. And, and you have to just stay cool and stay understanding and know that one of these days, it might be you in that situation that needs that um, you know, that understanding and that, and that forgiveness and that, that third chance. And so that's really important. That's awesome. Relationships. I, I love that. So I got, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, I do want to, I know this is probably a longer answer, so you can make it short, but I have two questions. The first one is, I'm just curious what your take, your one-on-one is on the future of architecture and how AI is going to change it. Um, I don't know if you ever get into that. I, I'm fascinated by AI, I'm more on the alarmist spectrum. Um, yeah. I think my job and I think a lot of jobs are going to be eliminated. Um, do you feel like AI is a threat to architecture? I think it could be. Yeah, I, 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 it's a, I haven't given it very much thought at all. Okay. I have read a little, a very little about it. And some of my podcast people are very much interested in the topic. And they're um, like you. I think you know the the people that I uh, uh, listen to and uh, and want to hear their point of view on are worried about it, um, but it does seem plausible to me that that an AI system can very easily 
design and document a building, mainly because um, if you move the client out of the way, the, the, the thinking through the problem of putting a building together is, is tangible, right? It's not abstract, right? There are, there are just, there are physical rules that are very kind of just straightforward and logical, right? A wall, a roof, a floor, waterproofing, a plumbing system, electricity. So yeah, I could, I could, I could see it very much um, yeah. having a huge impact for sure. Yeah. One of my favorite books is The Fountainhead. And I, I love Howard Rourke, the character in that, who's an architect. And when I think of AI and architecture, like, you know, Howard Rourke, as you may or not know, he, he did it his way. And his whole take was, it's like the human body. There shouldn't be anything on a building that doesn't serve a purpose. And when yeah. I think of AI getting involved in your industry, I almost think it could be like a little bit like Howard Rourke did it in, in The Fountainhead. Uh, and then where the beauty and the art comes in is maybe in the stuff that isn't necessarily functional, that right. gives gives it a you know differentiation or something. So, um, do you have you read that book by the way? I have, but a long time ago, okay. I, I I really only remember the broad outline of yeah, it. Yeah, Howard Work was very uh, very different in the architecture world, and he did yeah. it his way, or he just walked away. I don't know how uh, successful he'd be in in this day and age, but. Um, the question I had, I think I know the answer. If architecture was off the table and you had to choose a career, like a dream job, you know, like a lot of people look at your, your brother and your dad and football coach. I mean, think that would be a dream job. Is there a dream job? Is it, is it a secret agent, diplomat, spy? I mean, is that really, were you joking? I, or? No, I'm not. I, I actually, um, I, if I could start over again and architecture was off the table, I would probably, um, I would probably pursue something in that realm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, um, you know, take my undergraduate degree that I've got, go to law school, uh, apply to, I don't know, you know, the foreign service, the state department, uh, diplomacy. Yeah. I find that super fascinating. Would you say that be, I mean, you would be out and about traveling. You'd be mobile. You're right now in a world that you're stationary, probably a lot of the time, yeah. very, very different. Yeah. worlds like it's interesting yeah. that you tell me that because i wouldn't think i would think you know maybe writing music or something where you could kind of hunker down like you do now and yet you pick a, a career that is the total opposite well that that's my other dream career is to be lead guitar in a great rock band or drummer all um, right well let's start or, about or, or philip glass if i can be philip glass that would be that well, would maybe be it I don't think it's too late. I think you and I, and we'll get Merkling House and LeBeau or whatever. We could start a band. Um, I think, you know, uh, Craig Levine has been playing the guitar. So, yeah. Yep. I, yep. Grew, I grew up next to Craig. Um, small world. Hey, uh, Mike, thank you so much. Uh, you're awesome. I appreciate it. I, I, uh, I hope to bump in you a little more. Uh, I think what you uh, provided is really useful, and um, I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was very much my pleasure. And when I'm down in Bend, I will let you know. Um, well, you know, I'm not in Bend. Oh. No, your brother's in Bend, right? I thought you were in Bend too. No, I, you know, I moved away. I went to Sun Valley back six, seven years ago. I took my family and put my kids in school there and um, <laughs> did that for a couple of years. But I live in North Bend. Oh, yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So no, it's cool. Yeah. 
No, I'm up and we live in a, uh, we have a farm and we actually live in a barn. You'd love it. Um, so kind of a different way of living, but it works for us. So, well, if you find yourself in Seattle okay. or in Ballard, just get a hold of me. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. All right.